Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, it's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about the by-election now mm-hmm. has been called in the provincial riding of Vancouver, Quilchenna. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon uh, hoping to return to the B.C. legislature. I think you'll have a fairly straightforward path to, to getting in. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Here's a video we put out on uh, Twitter on the weekend. I'm excited that there's now a by-election being held in the riding of Vancouver, Quilchenna. And I look forward to working every single day hard to earn the support and trust of the residents of that riding so that we can get back into Victoria Hold the NDP to account. He's always got to put that sort of up with people piano music in the background there. <laughs> yeah, but as you say, there should be a cakewalk for Kevin Falcon and, yeah. and the BC Liberals. But if there's an upset, that would be a disaster for, for the Liberals. So this is one of the, I think this is one the first or second strongest um, seat uh, historically for the BC Liberals and their predecessors, the um, Social Credit Party. The NDP really doesn't have a, a ghost of a chance here, but you never know. Yeah, the NDP candidate is Dr. Jeanette Walsh, or Dr. Jeanette Ash, I should say. And she is a social justice advocate and also happens to be the spouse of uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, which is yeah, interesting. Very interesting. It's part of the NDP family, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy Stewart, a former federal NDP MP. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, she's got her work cut out for her. This is a very strong, this is a very affluent riding Yeah, uh, the west side of Vancouver. It yeah. doesn't get much more affluent than that. West Vancouver is basically, it's, it's, it's mirror across, uh, across the, uh, the inlet there. Taking a look at the, the result in that riding in the 2020 BC election, Andrew Wilkinson, the former liberal leader, is his seat. He stepped aside for Falcon here. He got 56% of the vote. Uh, compared to the NDP candidate, got 28%. So he won by more than 6,000 votes. Like, you can't get much of a safer liberal Well, you know, low is usually lower. Uh, t- sorry, turnout is usually lower in by-elections. It'll be interesting how, how many times John Horgan goes to that, right? I mean, Horgan's popularity is running ahead of his party. Yeah. Uh, does he sort of use his popularity as a, as a, on, the, on the campaign hustings there? I suspect he's going to pay at least one visit to that riding during the campaign. What's your read of Falcon's leadership of the Liberal Party so far? Where does he want to take this party? Or what's his strategy in going up against Horgan? He's a pretty popular premier right now. It, he is, but I noticed that Falcon's also talking about issues about uh, that got the NDP where they are, which is affordability issues, childcare, for example. Uh, is one he's stressing. He's looking for relief on some taxation side. Uh, Falcon, historically, anybody who's known him through the years, I mean, he started out from a fairly right-wing perspective. Yeah. I think he shifted a bit uh, away from that uh, right side of the spectrum, but he's still on the right side of the spectrum. So I'm, I'm not sure he's going to take the party more to the right or more to the middle to get more of those affordability issues. I, again, right now, though, I'm not sure any political party can sell itself with credibility when it comes to solving affordability because so many external factors are there now that weren't there a number of years ago. Inflation now is yeah. you know around 5%, could go higher, and the, not much the government's going to be able to do about that. And, and no one's been able to solve the housing situation. Last Angus Reid poll, 
the NDP had a very commanding lead over the Liberals in, in popular vote and in terms of leadership approval with John Horgan. But the NDP is getting absolutely, I think they got like 9% of the of the electorate think it's doing a good job solving the housing affordability issue. So if, I'm not sure any party is going to be given credibility by the voters when it comes to solving that one. Well, speaking of housing, the NDP will portray Falcon as the champion of the rich and privileged and, and point out that in his 10 years since he's been away from politics, he was working largely yep. as a real estate developer, making a lot of money. So you, you will hear that continually from the NDP. Oh, yeah. It, and, and, you know, Falcon likes to point to his record, but it's a two-way street. Um, he yeah. did build a lot of things when he was uh, transportation minister. Yeah. That's all well and good. But the NDP is going to dredge up a lot of things that were done on his watch as finance minister, as health minister. Uh, once you're in politics for a long time, you've got a record, and that can cut both ways. One thing about Falcon, though, I think he's a hard worker, and uh, he's very determined here to make the most of this. And I, I don't think he should be underestimated. I think he'll Not be a better leader than Wilkinson. Oh, yeah. I think he, he's a better communicator. I yeah. think he's a better uh, politician. He's a, better, he's a street-smart politician. Yeah. Um, but it's not just him. You know, They lost their way big time in a number of ridings in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver. And the question is, is this NDP penetration of places like Langley, Abbotsford, and Chilliwack a one-time deal? Or is this the sign of shifting demographics, which favors the New Democrats and the sort of the centrist party, uh, away from um, away from the BC Liberals? I mean, th those are traditionally rich, fertile BC Liberal strongholds, and they lost them to the NDP. Okay. That's a key by-election. We're going to follow for you here on the show. It's Liberal Leader Kevin Falcon against NDP candidate uh, Dr... Look at that. No, I've forgotten her name. All right. Dr. Jeanette Ash. Ash. Okay. The, green, the, <laughs> the last Greens, time I forget her name. I believe the Greens okay. also have a candidate there as well. Okay. We're going to follow that. And by the way, I put out the invite to both of them to come on the show here for a debate. Mm. And and they both have essentially agreed. Okay. At least their people did. So we're going to set that up for you in the days ahead. We started the show today. I, I thought it was really interesting to see a union actually breaking through and organizing an Amazon warehouse in New York City. It's the first Amazon mm -hmm. facility to be successfully unionized in the United States. We've seen a union drive in Canada. They tried to organize some Amazon facilities here. Unsuccessful. The Teamsters tried to organize mm -hmm. Amazon in Canada without any success. But I find it really fascinating that this small union, sort of independent union, managed to actually do this in New York City. Have a listen to Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, here talking about his attitude toward unions. Have a listen to this. We don't believe that we need a union to be an intermediary between us and our employees. Um, but, of course, at the end of the day, it's always the employee's choice. And, and that's how it should be. Okay, so he says that's how it should be. To, you, it's a worker's right to choose to join well, a union, but they, they will. Bezos and Amazon will fight tooth and nail here against this union now. A, a lot has been written about the working, poor working conditions at a lot of Amazon outlets in the United States. Oh. Uh, this is also New York City, which is the most union-friendly city in the entire uh, country, so it's not surprising it happened there. You're not going to see or, uh, Amazons in some of these uh, very weak unionized uh, states uh, you know, sign contracts because just you just don't have that union culture in so many parts of the United States. It's very much a New York. It's very much an urban uh, union situation in in the United States and in BC. The the percentage of private sector unions has been dropping for years. Yep. It's we're not seeing a rebirth of that uh, very much right now. When you talk about the labor movement in, in British Columbia, for example, it, the focus is very much on the public sector side because yep. that's where it's almost one hundred percent unionized. The private sector side. I remember years ago. 
the BC Federation of Labor president and the and the head of the F uh, Forestry Workers Union, Jack Monroe. I mean, these were major figures on the political landscape of British Columbia. That's just not the case. Very anymore. powerful. That they've been now replaced by public sector yeah. union presidents, which you're going to hear a lot about in the in the weeks ahead, as they're in the middle of negotiations right now. Almost four hundred thousand unionized workers in the public sector in BC's contracts all expired last week. The exception is the teachers' union, whose contract expires on June 30th at the end of the school year. So everybody's in the, right now uh, at the bargaining table. Some have walked away and hit the pause button for a while. But what's crept onto the t talks like never before is inflation, which is around 5% a there, year. You think there could be strikes because the unions are asking for a big raise? We don't know what the unions are asking for yet. One assumes that inflation is part of the, the base there, which is 5% yeah. a year. A 5% a year contract across the board for three years would cost the government about $9.5 billion, um, or cost the taxpayer $9.5 billion. I think the prospect for job action is, is higher than we've seen for years. Yeah. Uh, whether, yeah. whether that actually uh, comes to fruition remains unknown, but don't be surprised if it does, at least in some of the sectors. Okay, real quickly before we take a break and then take some calls, what's the latest on a fourth shot of the vaccine, another booster? So we're, should, we're getting an update tomorrow from Dr. Bonnie Henry on the update on the fourth dose or the second booster. The National Advisory Committee on uh, Immunization has been hard at work on this issue. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration of the United States approved the fourth dose. That now goes to the CDC down there, the Center for Disease Control, for final approval and distribution. And we're usually lag behind the states by a few weeks when it comes to approving vaccines. You know, they went first in the 5 to 11-year-olds, and then a few weeks later, we, we approved it as well uh, at, at Health Canada. So the expectation, talking to the Health Minister Agent Dix last week, the expectation is the fourth dose should be made available sometime this month, later this month or early May, and the first people to get it will be those in long-term care and those with immune-compromised uh, system who are clinically vulnerable. Uh, and, then again, and then 50 and over, like in the U.S.? Don't know. Uh, I wouldn't right. be surprised if, well. if it is 50 or over or 70 or over. Uh, right now, the, the information out there, the studies, is that the immunity starts to wane quicker in older population than younger population. We've had a six-month interval between doses. That's going to re remain, I think, for the older, uh, probably people over the age of 70 or 80, whether or not we go to a longer interval for, say, 30- or 40-year-olds, that's what I think they're, they're, they're looking at right now. Keith Baldry is my guest. The phone lines are open. If you phone now, you're probably going to get through. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. We were talking off air about the plan by government to release some numbers here on the vaccination rate for healthcare workers, right? When is that happening? That could happen as early as today or tomorrow. So if you recall, if it's long been a rule, if you want to work in a hospital or acute care setting or um, other facilities, the, it's been a mandatory vaccination rule. That's been on yeah. the books for months. Yeah. As a result, about 2,000 healthcare workers have chosen to leave their jobs because they refuse to be vaccinated. But that rule has not, the mandatory rule does not apply to other healthcare professionals such as dentists, chiropractors, um, a number of other healthcare work, naturopaths, for example. There's about 25 different categories, uh, tens of thousands Should of be. people. They had until March 31st to declare their vaccination status. If they refuse to declare, they're deemed to be non-vaccinated. The plan is to uh, allow people to know whether the healthcare professional they're seeking services from is vaccinated or not. Not no. sure how that's going to work. I'm not sure if it's going to be posted on a website or whether healthcare professionals are going to be required to post it themselves. That's very unclear. But, you know, you take uh, the chiropractor profession. 
There was a story early on in, in the pandemic how they, some of them actively refusing campaigned against vaccines. Yes, right. Uh, and we've seen that, uh, that, you know, that profession in particular has had some issues with the vaccination uh, requirements. So it's going to be interesting to see what the take-up rate is in a number of these professions. It will be interesting, like, okay, let's say this information is disclosed. Would people want to know, is my dentist vaccinated? Is my dental hygienist vaccinated? And if they're not vaccinated, would I would I go to a different dentist? Well, yeah. Like, I mean, is that the is that what the government's trying to do here to give people the information so they make make their yes. own choice? Yes. Okay. My understanding is, is is to give the information out. the 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 first rule. Okay, Keith. Let me interrupt you there right now, and let's go to the newsroom right now for some breaking news. Mike, Keith, this is Gord McDonald in the Global Newsroom. Premier John Horgan has announced on Twitter he has tested positive for COVID. He sent out the tweet just a few minutes ago. He says, fortunately, my symptoms are mild. Premier John Horgan testing positive for COVID-19. Of course, the Premier just getting over major treatment in the past few months, chemotherapy included, for throat cancer. Once again, Premier John Horgan announcing on Twitter this morning that he has tested positive for COVID-19, but he says, fortunately, my symptoms are mild. I'm Gord. Gord McDonald. Gord, thank you for that breaking news. Keith, your reaction to that? Not surprised. Uh, the, I track this every day. The positivity rate uh, for COVID-19, the percentage of tests coming back positive, has slowly been increasing. John Horgan lives in the capital on Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island has the highest positivity rate in all of British Columbia wow. at about 18% uh, compared to less than 5% in Metro Vancouver about 14% in the interior in the north. These are seven-day rolling averages. So the capital and Vancouver Island, and there seems to be a little higher positivity rate just north of here in the Cowichan uh, area in Nanaimo. But the, the fact is, if you, look, if you go to the Center for Disease Control website, look at the map that's updated every Tuesday, you will see the higher percentage on a per capita um, basis is a little higher in the capital than it is in many other areas in BC. So not surprising that at a time when the case numbers are going up. Uh, but the key thing here, John Horgan says he has mild symptoms. And that's the case for pretty well the vast majority of people who test positive for COVID-19. Our hospitalization rate has not been going up. The ICU number is the lowest it's been since August as of Friday. So those are the, the severe illness associated with COVID-19 has declined in number. But we're starting to see an uptick now in the number of cases, and that's just not here. Ontario, same thing. Wastewater levels are starting to increase in terms of the de detection of the virus, and we're not going to be different than that. I'm sure he will be. He and his doctor will be cautious, though, as a guy who is battling cancer and has gone through 35 radiation mm -hmm. treatments, and then you get you get COVID. Um, that's something to be careful about, because we're told people people with cancer patients are potentially more at risk, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. They're going to be yeah. monitoring that very closely. But again, he says he has mild symptoms. Mild, that's, yeah. That's very encouraging. Now, it's going to be interesting. So he was here on Friday, if I recall. So, you know, we're everybody's in the hallway. Um, yeah. I didn't mm. see him personally, but I saw him sometime last week in the hallway. 
Uh, interesting if anybody else in the building now uh, in the legislature tests positive as a result. Okay. One of the right. risks associated with opening the house up, there's st- masks are mandatory in the chamber. They're optional in the hallways. You must be vaccinated to enter the legislature. We've had a number of COVID-19 cases with staff people in the legislature. And now John Horgan is just the latest. Keith, thanks a lot. All right. And that's Keith Baldry. Thanks a lot, for Keith, for coming in. Baldry's beat.